Let's get back to the top story of the afternoon, which is the shoreline hazard warning for the waterfront here in Toronto. And you just heard our chief meteorologist, Anthony Fresnel, up in Bracebridge with a pretty dire forecast. More rain expected. They're under rainfall warning there. And, of course, it is the last thing that area needs with uh, flooding. And we've, uh, you know, had uh, armed services personnel uh, called in to help volunteers uh, up in that area. And what gives with the uh, flooding of uh, recent uh, the recent uh, week or so? I mean, we're used to flooding in, in Canada. This is kind of that uh, time, spring and uh, spring flooding. But uh, we've really seen, uh, you know, uh, people in Bracebridge and Muskoka in tough, not to mention uh, Ottawa. There's also been some pretty major flooding in both uh, Quebec and New Brunswick. Let's welcome in uh, Joseph Delauge. He is a a professor with the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto to discuss this further with us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Joseph, good afternoon, and uh, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Good afternoon. All right. uh, First off, I just kind of wanted to look at what's going on and what's uh, happening here. I think from a planning standpoint, and is this just a case of, uh, you know, we've been building and planning our cities wrong in the wrong manner that we should have really been taking uh, floodplains a little more into account and that sort of thing? Well, that's certainly part of it. Um, I think over recent decades, um, perhaps even the latter part of the 20th century, we've been a lot better in terms of learning lessons lessons about getting out of risk areas. Uh, Take the Humber River in 1954, where 80 plus lives were lost as a result of Hurricane Hazel. Uh, we know we shouldn't develop in river valleys that are prone to flooding, and we've learned some of those lessons. Uh, so new development is certainly under much tighter guidelines, but cities uh, are, are historical artifacts of development over a long period of time. And so if you're a property owner uh, on a piece of land that's 100 years old or 200 years old, it's more difficult to say, I'm just going to pull up stakes, uh, move away from hazardous areas, and give up my, my, my property. So it's a combination of that. But we're also seeing some real effects for climate change. Yeah, which I want to get to in a second here. But uh, are we also seeing the effects of a development when it comes to uh, maybe a house was built uh, or a development, uh, an area was developed, you know, 30, 40 years ago, but it has fundamentally changed because of, uh, you know, uh, we've lost forests and uh, wetlands uh, have changed, uh, th- that sort of thing that's been going on? No, no question. And you you see that uh, uh, exasperated in, in, in city landscapes where we have a lot of impervious surfaces, the water runs off quickly, uh, river valleys fill up quickly as a result of rainfall events like we're seeing today. Uh, you add to that that, as you said, this is the normal flooding time of the year. Lake levels are high. Uh, rainfall is abundant. Uh, we have the east winds coming off Lake Ontario today and tomorrow. That produces and pushes up high uh, water levels and wave along the shorelines of, in the Toronto area. So it puts all of these areas at risk at, at these brief intervals for the year. But we're seeing a pattern of more persistent year-to-year uh, variability and extremes, uh, and that's what's really people getting people really sensitized. And according to uh, recent uh, reports, we're expecting uh, precipitation. We're expecting that to uh, increase uh, the levels in uh, winter months uh, for for the next little while. That's a long-range forecast. Are are we doing uh, uh, enough when it comes to uh, development and planning and taking into consideration things like uh, climate change and and projections? So the ability to adapt to changing extremes is not simple when you're trying to retrofit uh, say a, a city like Toronto or or any any landscape of that nature, you, there's simply no space to build water retention, water storage, 
Um, in new subdivisions, all of those are required for wet water extremes, but in older, older parts of the city, you can't do that. So adaptation requires different protocols like disconnecting downspouts and trying to reduce the amount of water that runs off your property, increasing green space, as you said, planting trees. All of those are, are sort of small-scale things that work on, on, on relatively isolated areas. But the big watershed stuff, like the St. Lawrence River, the Great Lakes issues, those are, those are not easy challenges when you think about the, uh, several hundred years of, of change to these particular areas, and, and you're not going to make uh, substantial impacts overnight on any of these adaptation strategies. Yeah, what's the role of government moving forward when it comes to uh, development? Because uh, developers, uh, you know, you have to believe that first and foremost, they're looking at uh, the, the scenery and uh, the saleability of a certain area for a, a development. I mean, something such as a flooding uh, might be well down on their list. Does government have a role to make sure that we're developing uh, not only in areas that are profitable for those developers, but are in areas that are the right places to develop, that are going to be safe uh, for some time to come? From no question, the planning groups and the development developers themselves, uh, this idea of a, of a ravine lot being a high-priced uh, kind of property to have uh, has a lot of uh, a purchase on it, if you like. but. The issue becomes that you have to set back from these hazardous areas. And so there's really two things that have to be strategized in this and are, and are being done in, in most circumstances that the government helps control on this, and that is monitor, measure, model, and try and get a good understanding where these risk areas are. So it's not a good time to be cutting back on those kinds of programs to make sure that we understand fully under the new normal of more rainfall, of more winter snowpack, of more extremes in climate, where the risk areas are. And then the second one is how do you adapt these risk areas for the infrastructure that's already in those floodplains or on those shorelines, and then how do you develop new to try and avoid those altogether? All right. When those risk areas are identified, uh, what should be done? Uh, do we need to, uh, you know, spend some money and shore up uh, infrastructure when it comes to a uh, flooding? Uh, do we need to incentivize people? Perhaps I've seen that uh, floated. That thought floated. That maybe we need to incentivize people to move out of those areas. Yeah, Quebec was doing that in the recent floods. They were offering a hundred thousand cumulative lifetime uh, repair to damaged homes or 200,000 buyout. Um, should we consider that? Well, a lot of homeowners say that, or property owners or business owners say that's not enough compensation. But for those that are fed up of repeated floods and damage and putting life and home at risk, uh, sometimes that might be just it. But I, I, I really believe that the the strategies here are are um, uh, move when you can, uh, protect when you can. The Toronto Islands is a classic example. Tommy Thompson Park was built uh, basically to protect the islands from the easterly winds when they come off these storm systems from Lake Ontario. And so you're trying to work the shorelines to your advantage, A, to protect the islands, B, to produce habitat in the park, see where to put landfill from all the development that's gone on. So that's the kind of sort of synergistic ecosystem response that uh, a lot of government has a, a say in terms of trying to plan our water, our waterfronts and our river valleys. Yeah, when it comes to the island, and again, they're under a shoreline hazard a warning uh, here this afternoon. Uh, have the lessons of 2017, the last time when the waters were this high, have those lessons been learned? Uh, have we done enough, do you think, to protect the residents and to protect the island? Probably, probably not, because the islands have are been there historically and, and uh, over the last 10,000 years, and they have eroded. They've disappeared at times. They've reappeared. 
Uh, not until we started developing in, in earnest the waterfront that we then said, well, let's put houses there, and now that we have this hazard, uh, let's protect it somehow. So it's something we just have to live with on that basis, but uh, water levels in Lake Ontario are very much an artifact of climate variability. They are not related to generally to water control structures downstream. Uh, so we are we are at the... Um, the vagaries of, of winds and waves and water and, and rainfall in the Great Lakes Basin, and those are something we're going to have to live with and somehow adapt to. And it's going to take, it takes a long time because you, you can't just move people out instantaneously. All right, Professor, I will uh, leave it there. really appreciate the time and your thoughts and perspective on this. Thanks Great. so much. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. There goes uh, Professor uh, Joseph DeLauji. He is the uh, professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto.